0: We're getting back into John's Gospel. Those of you who are regulars at College Church will know that we've been looking at John's Gospel for a little while now, and we sort of take breaks from it like we have over the last few weeks, and then we return to it, and now we're returning to John's Gospel. We're looking, uh, picking up the story in John chapter 13, verse 36. The next few weeks have a particular sort of mini-series to them in this overall series of John's Gospel. And I've called it, I wish I'd asked that. So what's going on is Jesus has announced that he's leaving. And having announced that he's leaving, the disciples, of course, have a lot of things that they ask. And when you look at what they ask, I, the more I looked at it, I, I, I thought, you know, I wish I'd asked that. And of course they did. And so now we have an opportunity to see uh, what it is that they've asked. And the, 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 the overall kind of uh, title of the question I've given to this sermon is, why is it that sometimes Christian leaders mess up. And we could broaden that to all of us, right? Because we're all human. But in particular, we're going to look at Peter's denial. And of course, it brings up the question, why is it that sometimes... Christian leaders mess up. So John chapter thirteen, verse thirty six, we're going to read to chapter fourteen, verse four. Don't get confused by the, the chapter subheadings or all that. It really sits sits together as one preaching unit. John thirteen, thirty-six to fourteen, verse four. Here it is. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I'm going you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him. Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. This is God's word. Why is it that sometimes Christian leaders mess up? Now we all know that we're, you know, we're human, we're sinners, we make mistakes and yet we hope and, and rightly so that our, that our leaders are holy, that they're, they're, they're godly and so if a Christian leader like Peter here in this story does something that is sinful or wrong or messes up, then it has an impact on, on the rest of us right and so the question is, how, how on earth could this happen to Peter, a Peter of all people, uh, one of the great leaders, one of the, the leaders in many the leader in many ways of those early disciples? How is it that Peter was the one who denied Jesus, not, not some of the other disciples? I mean how is it that the leader Got it so wrong. And, and what can we learn from what Jesus teaches in this context to explain not only why, but what we can do about it to prevent it and, and to find healing? If, if you've had someone in your life that has disappointed you, who's led you in a way that wasn't right or said or done things that weren't right, what, what can you learn from what Jesus says? I think there's a, there's a lot to learn. Let me, I do, know, though, need to introduce it in this way, because in some ways this is quite a personal message. Let me, let me explain that to you. And I, I don't think I can preach this authentically without explaining it to you. So when I was a, a young pastor, I was, I was working at a church in England. I was uh, running the college ministry. I did that for about three years. It's a church I'd attended for, for a number of years before that. And they hired me onto staff. I, I worked uh, as uh, the college uh, Pastor and then I came out to America and became senior pastor of a church on the east coast and so there I was and i 'd been at that church for a number of years i 'd been on staff i'd just rolled off staff because I was about to go to this this other church and there came this moment that is very clear still in my mind. When um, I got a call from another staff member, a more senior staff member than, than I was, who said this. He said, Josh, I need to come around to your house. I need to speak to you and Rochelle. Uh, we'd been married then by about a year, perhaps, if that. I need to speak to both of you. And um, there's something that's going to be announced tonight at the congregational meeting. The rest of the staff have been told, but you're no longer on staff, but I don't think it's fair for you to hear about it first time when everyone else hears about it. I think you need to hear about it beforehand, so I need to come around, I need to tell you something. Well, that sounded, didn't sound good, right? But I had no idea what was about to go down. No idea. So this um, more senior staff member sat down with us and just, just said it. There's no easy way to say, say this, this person said. The senior pastor, of course I won't use his name, but the senior pastor of this church where I was the college pastor had been, just rolled off the staff. The senior pastor is leaving his wife and his children to pursue a relationship with another man about 20 years or so junior to him, had been his study assistant. Wow. Okay. So when when I'm when I'm preaching on this passage, I just want you to know this is I I've I've um I know what it's like to be to have trusted someone and thought they were something that they clearly were not. I know what that's like. What I said at that moment was this: I said, "I'm shocked, but I'm not surprised." just came out, the first thing I said. And this other staff member said, you know, everyone who worked closely with them who's hearing it is basically saying the same thing. Because it was like, we had no idea what was happening, but now it all made sense. It's like dominoes going off in your mind. It's like, oh, now it makes sense. Now, obviously, I've thought about that many times over the years. What can I learn from that? What, what, what kind of culture can we set up in a church whereby that kind of thing doesn't happen? What, what, do, what do I need to learn from that? What, what do I need to learn make sure it doesn't... What are the kind of things that I need to learn from that? How, how, and I've reflected on it a lot. And obviously, each situation is different. Peter's denial of Jesus is not like that, and... and, 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 and you know, David's adultery is something different again, and and, and Moses and, and and the murder that he committed earlier in his life is different again, and it, it, there are all every situation is different. And yet here, in this bit of teaching, there is something that not just if you're a Christian leader, and in some sense if you're a Christian, you're a leader, for all of us are called to lead others to Christ, to to be an example to others, so this applies to us all, but not just if you're a pastor or a missionary, but for all of us, there's something here that we can really learn from, and it is so important, and yet at the same time it seems so counterintuitive or not sufficiently serious, almost too simplistic, that I've been afraid that I just announce what it is and then explain it, as is my usual habit, that you'll just think to yourself, well, no, that's not the answer. That's too simple. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the three movements of the sermon, but I'm not going to tell you like the big overall theme until we get to the end. The three movements of the sermon are pressure, misguided devotion, and then faith. And there are two parts of that which will then, as it were, reveal the overall point of, of the message this morning. It's a bit, it seems so simple. And if I just say it, I don't think you'll get it to I'll lead you there. It's a bit like, let me illustrate it like this. In in the, in the Second World War, uh, the uh, the high command was trying to figure out how to prevent their bombers, um, so many of them being destroyed. They wanted to increase the armor around the bombers. So they got together some experts and they began to look at these bombers who come back and they analyzed where the holes were in the fuselage where they'd been shot. And most people were saying, look, you need to increase the armor where the holes are, okay? Seems to make sense. But one man called Abraham Wald, who was a brilliant mathematician, said, no, you're thinking about it wrong. You don't need to increase the armor where the holes are, you need to increase the armor where the holes are not, because the bombers that were shot there didn't make it back. And he was right, of course. This is a bit like that. It seems like, really? Is it that simple? Yeah, I think, I think at, at its root, at its heart, at its essence, it, it, it kind of is. So let me walk you through it. So first of all, pressure. This is the first question that Peter asks. He asks, where are you going? Isn't he? That's, that's what he asks. But, but actually what Peter is, is revealing by that question is the kind of pressure that he's under. You've got to understand the context. Jesus has just announced that he's leaving, that he's leaving these disciples and they cannot follow and they've gone, they've, they've gone all the way to follow him. They've, they've thrown in everything they have with with him they've left their boats behind their fishing career behind as it were they left their friends their family behind they're now part of this notorious famous movement that Jesus is leading They, they they've they're all in with Jesus and then Jesus just suddenly ups and announces he's leaving and they can't follow they are under huge pressure And so Peter asks the inevitable question, well, where are you going? But when you hear that question, you've got to to hear it with a sort of emotion that Peter would have put into it. It isn't like, well, where are you going? Are you going to, you know, Walgreens or something, Jesus? Where are you going? It's, where are you going? I mean, time out here, where are you going? What, What do you mean you're leaving and we can't follow? Where are you going? Pressure. And I've seen this time and time again with people I've shepherded and pastored, people in ministry, Christian leaders, lay and paid leaders. Just anyone who's a Christian, I've seen this time and time again. Pressure. If you put enough pressure on someone, it's unpredictable how they'll behave. Pressure. It can be internal pressure. Our own um, psychological stuff that, that we're trying to counterbalance and we're not aware of. It can, be, it can be our temptations, our areas of temptation. It can be internal pressure. It can be external pressure. I think many people have no idea the kind of external pressure that many Christian leaders are under day by day, week by week, year by year, constant, constant external pressure. It, you know, I, I get a lot of people saying a lot of nice things about me, which is nice, but if, but, but, I was thinking, if I, if I brought to you all the things that people have said about me, all the emails that have been written to me, all the letters that have been sent to me that are critical or attacking, if I brought them all here and read them out, well, first of all, we wouldn't have time for anything else. Second of all, you'd be like, oh, wow, my, what is that all about? What is... Most, most Christians have no idea because the there's internal pressure, there's external pressure. But of course, most of all, and this is where Peter is, there's spiritual pressure. You know, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. There's spiritual pressure. If you're a leader of a small group, if you're a leader of our community, if you're, if you're a parent, if you're, you're, you're trying to lead your um, Christian's um, group at high school, if you're a leader, there's, there's pressure on you because if you can compromise, it's going to affect other people. pressure what do we do about it well I think it helps sometimes for people just to point it out to us you're under pressure you're not behaving the way you should behave this happened to Winston Churchill during the second world war and those early days he was under huge pressure and began to behave in ways that probably were he was he was losing his temper he was shouting a bit too much that kind of thing And his wife wrote him a letter that we we still have. Clementine wrote to him and basically said, look, Winston, you're under huge pressure, we get it, but you can't behave like this. And she quoted him a saying that Winston Churchill had himself used about leadership. It was a French saying, which translated in English, roughly speaking, goes like this. The one who would lead souls must be calm. In other words, Churchill, chill out, relax calm down sometimes we need people to tell us that sometimes a good dose of humor helps just to just to laugh just to Crackage, j- just, to, just to, you know, not, not take the situation so seriously. Oh, okay, just to laugh about it. Franklin D. Roosevelt was famous for this. In the receiving lines at the White House, when he was under huge pressure, he would just crack jokes with his aides, just to, just to elevate the mood. Just laugh. Sometimes you just got to remember you're human. You're human, you know? You're physical as well as spiritual. You're human. You know, Elijah... When he'd just done this huge, amazing thing with the, the, uh, defeating the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, and he was then under, uh, then became, had been under huge pressure and then became very depressed. Elijah, what, what did God say to Elijah in that context? God didn't say to Elijah, you know, study the Bible harder, Elijah, that will help. What God said to Elijah was, go to sleep, and then here's a meal. You're human. One person this week said to me, "This you could translate that this way: Do not underestimate the spiritual benefit of a nap and a snack." <laughs> You're human. Pressure, but then there's also this misguided devotion, and this is really the second question that that Peter then po- poses to to Jesus, or the, the second interaction that Peter then has with Jesus, and then Jesus' reply. And what's fascinating about this is the way that John's gospel, John is a is a subtle, careful author, and he uses irony a lot. Irony is saying one thing but really meaning another, and you do that to emphasize the thing that you're not saying. So John does this quite a lot. So for instance, in, in, earlier in the, in, in the gospel, when he's describing how Jesus heals the blind man Actually, it isn't the blind man who's blind, it's the Pharisees who are blind, and it's one long ironic statement underlying the importance of spiritual sight. Irony, it's used all the time in, 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 in literature, in movies, uh, the Beauty and the Beast movie, the early one, the cartoon one, not the more recent one, the early one. There's this scene when Gaston is trying to propose to Bell, and uh, he's... he's puffing himself up and saying I'm great and surely you want me and clearly by the, he isn't that great and she really does not want him and he, he's trying to propose to her and the final moment she has her hand on the, on the, on the door uh, and opens the door and he tumbles out and she says as, she, as he tumbles out I just don't deserve you. And of course the point is precisely the reverse but it's emphasized it. Now here in this passage what Peter says is actually a quotation ...from what Jesus has said earlier. I'll lay down my life for you, Peter says. But this is the same thing... That Jesus earlier said in John chapter 10 when he describes the Good Shepherd, the Good Shepherd is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. That's the characteristic mark of the Good Shepherd. Peter wanted to be that. And indeed, by the end of the gospel, yes, Jesus said he now got it, he was going to be that. And indeed, Peter did give his life for the cause of Christ and the gospel. But right now he's wrong-headed. He's got misguided devotion about it. He says, Oh, I'll die for you, Jesus. I'm the hero of this story, Jesus. I'll give my life for you, Jesus. I'll do anything for you, Jesus. Look, look, just watch me, Jesus. I'll save the day. And, And Jesus says, no, will you lay down your life for me? Really, it's the other way around, isn't it, Peter? So often, you know, people who mess up as Christians, who sin, it's not like they wanted to get there, but they've been driven often by misguided devotion. I've seen this. Time and time again, it's like we are the heroes. Like Our church is going to save the world. No, it's not. Jesus is the saviour of the world. we got one saviour. We don't need another. It's him. One conversation I played in my mind over and over again about this this senior pastor who morally compromised years ago and had mentored me and all the rest. One conversation... I played in my mind over and over again, is when I was sitting down with him over breakfast. He'd been preaching here, there, and everywhere. And I was wondering how on earth he was doing it. I wanted to learn. You know, I had my notebook out. How do you do this? I was ready to take notes. And I said to him, look, how, how is it that you're finding the time to prepare your sermons? I don't get it. Your schedule's so full. How do you do it? And he just said to me, ah, Josh, I just use my, uh, I just use my quiet times for that. And when I heard that, I thought, that doesn't sound quite right. But looking back on it, I think it's, it's sadly all wrong. It's like, if, if I'd been 20 years older, I would have said to him, look, you're not the hero of the story. What do you think you're doing? Stop preaching so much. Get a quiet time. Spend time with Jesus. It's, he's the one who laid down his life for you, not the other way around. Seen this pattern over and over again. In, not just in Christian leaders, in Christians' lives, we begin to marginalize our relationship with Jesus, thinking that we're doing things for Jesus. We've got to put that back into the heart our relationship with Jesus, our time with Jesus, our devotion with Jesus. And you think, oh, it's too simplistic. Hudson Taylor, one of the great missionary leaders. When he was ever told of a missionary who were compromised or messed up, in the phrase we're using this morning. When he was told of a missionary who messed up, his question was always, when did he stop having his quiet times? When? Not did he. When? It's, it's, it's just such a predictable pattern, this misguided devotion. And you're sitting there saying, it's far too simplistic. We need all sorts of accountability and structures. You you do. And we have that as a church. If you're interested in that, you can go online. We've got our bylaws. We've got all sorts of checks and balances and accountability structures, not just for the leaders, the elders, the deacons, the pastors, but for all of us. And you need that, and it's important. And we have that. We have 150 years that have built up wisdom to how to do it, primarily from Scripture. We have that, and it's very important. But you know what? That church I served back there had a lot of the same stuff. And you can always find a way around accountability if you really want to. And the heart of the matter is this misguided devotion. You're not the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story. Let him take center place. Don't put yourself in center place. Don't think you've got to save the world. He's going to save the world. He has. He died on the cross and rose again and is coming back. Your job is to proclaim that message and guard your relationship with, with him. Uh, John Stott, famous preacher, now gone to be of the Lord, he had a mentor. And his mentor would say to him often when he was you know, thinking through different things and how to do various stuff and different people. Come to and say, How do I manage all these different responsibilities and all the different things going on? This mentor of John Stott would just say, Just abide, man. Abide meaning stay in Christ. Just, just abide. Just rest in him. Just guard that devotional time with Jesus. Misguided devotion. I know you're thinking it's too simplistic. I've just got to tell you, I've seen it over and over again. I thought it was too simplistic too, first. I've seen the pattern over and over again. Misguided devotion. But there's a bigger thing. And this is the final thing, the third thing, which is faith. And it really has two parts to it. And um, the two parts to it, you'll see in this passage, the second part, which I want to reveal right at the end, because I think you're, if I didn't reveal it right at the end, you'd think it was too simplistic, but it actually is the whole game. The two parts of it, uh, there's faith then, and it's the first four verses of chapter 4. The first part is what Jesus says here, where he says, trust in God, trust also in me. Now, actually, there's some complexity there to how that's translated, and you may have it translated in slightly different ways in your Bible, because the the verb trust can be translated either as a command or as a statement, and both the same word, believe, in either place could be translated in either place as a command or as a statement. But... Actually, John is, I think, such a subtle writer, he intends all of that. He intends to say, trust in God is a command, and you are trusting in God, then you are also trusting in me. Because John's point, context is king when you're interpreting the Bible, John's point, what's just happened is that Peter, Jesus has just said that Peter is going to deny him three times, and now Peter says nothing throughout the whole rest of the upper room discourse. He is stunned into silence, which is an unusual thing for Peter. He's shocked. It's going to be him? And of course, all the other disciples are now rushing to ask their questions, because like, well, if Peter isn't... And maybe you feel that. Maybe that's where you are. You know, I trusted that guy. He was like a Peter. He was, he was so gifted. He was so amazing. He was so wonderful. And yet, look what happened. And I, and I, how am I ever going to trust anyone again? Here's what Jesus does not say. Trust in God. Trust also in Peter. That worshipful, trust place can only be occupied by the living Lord and God, Jesus Christ. It's so important we get that right. I remember from that church years ago at the time, there was a joke in the city. The joke went like this, and we thought it was just a joke, but really, looking back, there was something, there was a reason why it was a joke. The joke was, you went to this other church to worship Jesus, but the church where I was working with a senior pastor who compromised, you went to that church to worship and the name of the senior pastor. That was the joke. And it was, you know, he was a dominant, brilliant kind of personality, so it's like, we thought it was a joke. But actually, actually, looking back, it's not trust in God, trust also in Peter. But there is another aspect to this faith, and it's a future oriented faith. So again, the context... Peter's the one who's, they're shocked by it being Peter. Jesus says, don't be troubled, which is an amazing thing for him to say, given that surely Jesus is the one who's going to be troubled, because he's the one who's going to lay down his life for them. But Jesus, who's such a good shepherd, turns to the disciples and says, don't be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. Then he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I don't know how else to say this other than as simply as I can. So often there's a lack of focus on heaven. Heaven. What is it that has taken place that have... All denominations and groups of Christians and churches throughout the world. It is the evangelical church that has so minimized preaching about, talking about, thinking about eternity. How did that take place? And why are we then surprised when our churches become, it's an old-fashioned word, but worldly? Worldly? How's that surprising? We don't even talk about heaven. Let alone think about heaven. Let alone preach heaven. Like I, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's going to be amazing. I, I'm going to prepare a place for you. It's, it's just for you. It's going to be beautiful and glorious and Amazing. Every godly Christian leader who has been faithful to the end, every Christian who has been faithful to the end, has at some point or other begun to think a lot about heaven. Happened to Augustine. At the end of his life, he asked for a week just to go out into the wilderness and think about heaven. just to think about heaven. Richard Baxter, great printer from Kidderminster, famous for writing the Reformed Pastor, he wrote another book called Saints Everlasting Rest. And in that book and in his life, he advocated for this practice, to think about heaven for half an hour a day. Before dinner each day, Richard Baxter would go for a walk and just think about heaven. I commend it to you. All the frustrations, all the slights, all the annoyances, all the difficulties, all the temptations, all the sins that you feel the pull of, you just think about it. For the joy set before him, he scorned the shame of the cross. You think about heaven. I go there to prepare a place for you. But it's not just a place. It's also also a person, isn't it? I'm going to leave you with this final illustration. Got the pressure, misguided devotion, now faith. Faith in the right place around Jesus. Faith looking forward to heaven, thinking about heaven place and person. Here's the final illustration. When I came uh, to this church a little over 10 years ago now, I came from another church where I'd been the senior pastor there for about nine years, and it was a big transition for me and for my family. There were lots of people there we loved, that we'd invested a lot. I had to think through the transition of that. And as I was telling a Christian leader how I was struggling with this transition, he counseled me, he advised me to read a book called Transitions, okay, so I read this book. It's not a Christian book. It's just a book about change and how you manage transitions. And as I was reading it through, I got to one particular chapter where the author was saying, one of the great things about transitions is it can help you clarify what you really want. You know, So you're not doing that anymore. You're going to do this. And it helps you clarify what it is that you really want. Want. And I thought, well, that sounds good. And so then I, he had a list of all the different things it could be that you really want. Different categories, subcategories, great list of all the different options, page after page. And so, studiously, I sat down and I read this great long list, page after page, option after option. And after I got to the end of it, I shut the book and said, well, I don't want any of that. And then I stood up in frustration and I said out loud, great Here I am, middle of my life, and I have no idea what I want. How good is that? And then I said out loud, you know, all I really want is to be with Jesus. (laughs) And then I thought, good, I'm probably a Christian. I'm going to come back, take you to be with me, so that where I am, you may be also. Just church, we should just think about that. Maybe about half an hour a day, just a few minutes a day. Just think about that. It will guard you against all kinds of messing up. Let's pray together. Let's take a moment to think about heaven. The place that Jesus is preparing for us. The the being with Jesus. Let's just, just take a moment now just to think about that. If you're not yet a Christian, I pray that you think about what happens after death. And would you this morning put your trust in the one who laid down his life for you? And so together we can think about heaven. Lord, we pray that we would be a people, individuals, and a church that is heavenly-minded, strives to lay up treasures in heaven to hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant, come and enter your rest. Pray, Lord, that we would sing about heaven, that we would preach about heaven, that we would think about heaven, that we would talk about heaven, that the realities of eternity would drive us to practical Christian service in a way that is not unhealthy but is healthy, that doesn't have misguided devotion but is truly devoted to you. Would you please do that for us as a church? We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.